0: Got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face.
1: Science, faith, and life. Ask science,
0: Mike. And here we go, edited into the show as a really exciting announcement. I just got an email from uh, my friend and manager, Brent, and It's a list of all the tour stops for the You're a Miracle book tour that I'm going to be doing uh, this April, late April and early May. And uh, I wanted to go ahead and tell you the dates and the cities so you can save the date and also know we will drop a link where you can buy tickets to uh, be at these events. I'm so excited uh, to get back on the road a little bit again. So April 27th, Atlanta, Georgia. We'll be kicking it off with you April 28th. That's the day of the book launch itself. I'll be in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, in On April 29th, I'll be in Minneapolis, Minnesota. April 30th, Seattle, Washington. May 1st, Portland, Oregon. And back home in Los Angeles, California on May 8th. One more time, that's Atlanta, Georgia, April 27th. Nashville, Tennessee, April 28th. Minneapolis, April 29th. Seattle, April 30th, Portland, Oregon, May 1st, and Los Angeles, May 8th. I would absolutely love to see you at those events. So here's what you can do if you want to make sure that you get the tickets as soon as they're available. Number one, I will send those tickets to my patrons on Patreon first. They'll get a first shot at grabbing tickets to these events. And then after uh, the patrons have their chance, I will email my email list with the events and then Finally, I will put them on the website and announce the ticket sales uh, on this podcast. So I'd love to see you in April and May for the You're a Miracle book tour. Well, you know, I've been doing more and more interviews on Ask Science Mike, and I always feel self-conscious about that because as I listen to other people do interviews in media, I'm becoming aware that um, a lot of people imagine who their audience might be interested in and then try to reach out and then they get a little briefing on that person and they do an interview and they have a lot of you know, questions for that person because they're not terribly familiar with their work. And what I do is I imagine who of my friends and people I follow that you all would be interested in that I happen to already be obsessed with and then I have to try to imagine what questions you might have if you haven't read every single book by a person or haven't really followed their work. And it's, and can be awkward. And uh, today is no exception to that because we are talking to a dear friend of mine whose work that I deeply admire and that I think is important and I think every listener of this program will want to be a part of. Today we are talking to Jeremy Valorand. Jeremy Valorand is the founder and CEO of Rescue Freedom International a nonprofit organization that works around the world to prevent exploitation and to empower the rescue and restoration of those in sexual slavery. Jeremy's background is in international business, and he has a graduate degree in diplomacy from Oxford University in the UK. He's an avid outdoorsman, outdoor gear tester, and the co founder of Climb for Captives, an initiative that utilizes mountain climbing to combat human trafficking. Jeremy lives in Seattle with his wife, Maren, and their three children. Jeremy, welcome to Ask Science Mike.
1: Uh, Mike, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I am so glad you're here because uh, lately I've been doing interviews of people whose books I've read and don't personally know. And uh, I get such like a sense of inadequacy in those situations. And I just love that today we can both talk about something that's important to me. And I get to do it with a friend who I'm really comfortable with. So this feels much less uh, performative for me. Uh, We just get to talk about things that I'm really curious about and interested in and excited to share with his audience. Um, Maybe like an easy way to start uh, would be kind of a little overview of what uh, Rescue Freedom is and, you know, kind of the genesis of of that whole project.
1: Yeah, I would love to. So Rescue Freedom, as, as you mentioned kind of in the opening, is fighting slavery around the world, specifically fighting uh, sex trafficking around the world. And um, my journey started about 12 years ago when I was on a trip to India with a friend of mine who had grown up there and he invited me. And it was before I was married and had kids when you could do things like just spontaneously jump on a plane and go to India. And so mm-hmm. I, I was, I was there, you know, I was thinking I was just a tourist. It was not meant to be some great humanitarian, you know, we weren't going to change the world. But he had some friends that had opened a safe house and were rescuing kids out of brothels. And when he told me that, I was like, wait, what? Like, what What are they doing rescuing kids out of brothels? Like, it was nowhere on my, on my radar. And um, so he said, well, let's, we, you know, we've got 36 hours on the tail end of our trip before we fly back. And let's go and see if we can visit some of the sites and see the work. And, so we went, and they drove us kind of first through the this huge red light area, and then we got to meet these kids that had been rescued out of out of that those brothels, and they were just so full of life and hope. And you know, I had grown up in a faith context that would use words like hope and faith and redemption and these big words that indicated sort of transformation. But when I saw kids that had come out of that, and the, that it, it sort of transcended my my faith lens of like, there was some, some part of me when I heard about the darkness of exploitation that was like, well, yeah, you can get kids out of it. But I don't know that there's, I don't know that there's recovery from that. Um, And then meeting these articulate young teenage girls that were getting ready to graduate high school and go to college that had confidence and were e- excited about their future. And it just honestly kind of wrecked me. I was like, I, 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 mm. I, I didn't know that, 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 at a spiritual, emotional, or even at a physical kind of neurological level that you could recover from that kind of trauma. Um, so I kind of left feeling like I just got to be a part of this story. And I don't know what that's going to look like. And, um, and so that's when I started climbing mountains and just trying to turn them into fundraisers. I was already, my, one of my hobbies was climbing mountains. So I just started throwing these climbs together. Like, well, let's just support efforts to like bring that kind of hope to victims of human trafficking. And, and it started sort of, sort of s- snowballed. And the next thing I knew, we were uh, launching Rescue Freedom, and 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 the the kind of catalyst for that launch was I had supported a bunch of different initiatives with those climbs, um, but really started to see that uh, there were a lot of sort of struggling locally led initiatives around the world that were run by nationals in country who were giving their lives. They knew the language, they knew the culture, but a lot of them didn't have a, a you know a nonprofit in the states. They didn't have a funding community and a lot of them didn't have access to world leading you know trauma therapists and best practices they just had like the most critical ingredient which was they were literally giving their lives to serve this community and i was like well man where's the organization that's finding those who are already giving their lives and coming alongside of them to accelerate their incredible efforts instead of just trying to recruit americans to spend three years in language school and move to the middle of nowhere on the other side of the world and and the cost of sending americans to do that let's just find and accelerate the incredible work that's happening and so that was kind of why we launched and now we're working uh, in 20 different countries and um, getting to basically i mean i love what i get to do because i get to find the people that are literally giving their lives every day and just come alongside of them say how can we support you with you know, funding is a part of that, but the resources, the training, one of our first hires was a full-time PhD trauma therapist that specialized in sexual recovery programs for uh, victims of sexual violence and exploitation to say, hey, let's, let's also bring the best of what we know about how the brain works and how healing works to give these women and children the best chance at a bright future.
0: I'm so glad that you named that right up top. Um, I think so often that Particularly Americans with the best of intentions um, try to rush into situations and take control and be the guiding force in situations where we don't actually have a lot of on the ground knowledge and where uh, the expense of having Americans involved you know undermines the effectiveness of the mission of the organization totally and what i appreciated like the at my first encounter with rescue freedom was this notion and this intention of this practice of empowering and funding local led work and coming alongside people already doing that work and supporting them financially and with other resources like you say uh, in trauma therapy which is like a, a pretty specialized discipline that we're we're just getting our hands on in, uh, you know, the academy yeah. in wealthy nations. Yep. Um, and so, kind of accelerating the impact of those learnings into these communities where trauma informed therapy work is so essential. Um, it just immediately, at least for someone like me, it lets me take a, a deep breath and 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 relax talking about sexual slavery because so often we we immediately start to run into the 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 cultural issues of white supremacy and uh you know American foreign policy and European foreign policy uh and your approach lets us actually focus on on the real issue at hand here and that is that issue of sexual slavery and human trafficking um how did you go about cultivating that model how did you um how did you get that off the ground cuz did that come naturally or was there a period of learning and research to realize that was the way to move forward
1: yeah it, so there was a process of you know there was about a four year window from when i started kind of raising support for different entities out there through these climbs and other means where i was learning a ton about the issue and um you know and, and there's certainly some fantastic you know anti-trafficking organizations that that we worked with or that that are you know sort of maybe more the the stereotypical kind of american um entity but that are navigating those cultural barriers really well but i just saw so many people around the world that were giving their lives for it and that were alone um you know so initially part of it was um you know, there's there's nothing worse in, in any area of life than feeling alone, um, you know, but particularly in this where I thought, man, these I would meet these people who were doing such incredible heroic work and just felt like they were the only ones doing it. Um, now, coming out of the business world, the, the practical and strategic side of it was like, well, that's not ver- if they feel alone and they feel like they're the only ones doing it, that probably means they're also reinventing the wheel because they probably don't know what others have pioneered in their in their sector or in their sphere and so that means they're probably having to do a lot of extra legwork. And so if, if we can connect them together, it solves that, that emotional kind of loneliness and helps them feel like, man, we're a part of a community. We're not just taking on the, you know, the mob or the mafia or the cartels who are you know, the traffickers. Um, and that's, that's one of the challenges of this work is you're taking on sinister actors who are perpetuating it. Um, but if you're doing it alone, that means you're also isolated from knowledge and best practices and tools and training and and so, you know, initially I thought, well, let's just help these people not feel alone, have access to some of those those tools and those resources, um, and and but you know, I, in all honesty, I was still a little naive in terms of, you know, I thought I probably overestimated the importance of funding too, of like, oh well, if if we could just double their funding, we'll double their impact. Um, but then realizing really mm-hmm. quickly, like, oh, some of those tools, like the trauma trauma therapy tools um, and trauma training and trauma informed care models. Uh, how impactful that stuff would be. And then also realizing like, you know, and it's funny, I joke in the nonprofit sector is I've, I've still never met anybody that launches uh, a nonprofit or specifically a nonprofit working with traumatized population because they're passionate about boards, budgets, and bylaws, which are like Mm -hmm. the three things that if you have a successful organization, those three things become a huge part of your focus is, you you know, having a board, having a budget and figuring out your bylaws, but nobody gets into it because they want to build an organization the people we work with get into it because they want to save lives. They want to show people love. They want to bring hope into really dark places. And if it works and they end up with a house full of, of you know, women and children, or they end up with this prevention program that's serving a vulnerable population of a few thousand in a the community, then it's like, oh no, how do we sustain this? How do we fund it? How do we hire staff? How do we build a board? So we really realize we have to come alongside of them holistically we have to provide organizational coaching and help them i mean we have several that are going through major you know either a founder transition or they've you know had a some maybe it's a tragic accident and there's a new staff member that has to come in or um, so realizing how much of our work is is just helping people not feel alone in the operations in the programs and in life in general
0: Hmm. you're on the front lines How's it going? Uh, I mean, you know, I've read that slavery has never been more common in history than it is right now. That there are more human slaves on the planet in two thousand and twenty than there ever have been in the history of human civilization. Um, We know that human trafficking and sexual slavery happens in countries all over the world, including Western nations, including the United States. You know, there there are people. Uh, right now, probably within a couple miles of my house, working against their will in sexual yep. slavery yep. right now. Um, you're on the front lines of this. Is it hopeless or, um, or are we making some kind of headway?
1: and yeah, Mike you've probably heard me say this probably a few times over the years that we've known each other uh, you know there's this m- mantra that I I have to repeat to myself and it's actually written on the wall in, in my office it says it's not the injustice that drives us it's the magnitude of hope um, that I have to kind of chant that over and over because one it, it I, I do believe it but I don't believe it every day um, there are times where it's hard to remember that mm-hmm. you know the the thing that um, at a big picture um, that there's this you know, there's this tension, Every, everything we do, I feel like we're holding these tensions where on one hand, there's more slaves in the world today than any other time in history. But then the flip side of that is it's the lowest number per capita that it's ever been. So in other words, we have the, we have the largest mm-hmm. human population that we've had in history. And so the number of slaves, yes, there's more now than ever before, but it's also the smallest number by percentage of the human beings on the planet which means there's more and more humans that are opposed to slavery. It's the first time in the history of the world, like you go back 150 years when most of the major civilizations were still built on legal, you know, slave, the legal slave trade. Um, Certainly, you know, two centuries ago, um, the majority of the world's economies were built on the back of slavery. And now for the first time in the history of humanity, every country of the world has essentially declared slavery illegal has passed laws to say that it is illegal in our country. Now, we don't have actual law enforcement of all those laws yet in all those countries. um, But to sort of feel like we're standing at a unique time in human history to say the whole world has actually declared that slavery is in violation of what we believe to be the inherent dignity of mankind. Um, It's the first time in history, every nation has actually said, yep, we agree with that. Now, again it's not it's not implemented in practice yet in those places but that's a really strong thing to build on when you think back to like the british abolitionist movement and the fact that wilberforce had to spend decades just to pass the laws to say can we at least say it's wrong before we actually implement it can we can we first even say it's wrong well we we have now every country in the world saying yeah it's wrong and we'll hopefully get around to enforcing that but you know and that's where we come in so there there is room to be to be hopeful we are seeing momentum we are seeing a sort of human consensus that we want to point ourselves as a, as a human species towards a future that is absent of slavery.
0: I mean, that's, uh, it starts getting to the heart of something for me. I mean, obviously people who put other human people into slavery, uh, and especially into sexual slavery, they aren't great people. They're bad actors but they're not putting people into these into this bondage because they're bad people. They're doing it because there's a market demand that they can capitalize yep. on, right? The, the, these things wouldn't exist without a demand uh, for forced yep. sex work. Um, what have you learned about where that demand is coming from and how does the demand for forced sex work impact your work trying to liberate people from human trafficking?
1: Well I think I think you're spot on in, in sort of identifying that you know fundamentally this issue is a demand is a demand issue. Um, and it and it's hard in some ways again, I came out of the business world where we you know you talk about things in terms of economic terms and it's it feels almost inappropriate to like, distill sex trafficking down cause this is like lives and people to distill it down to an economic, like supply and demand chart. But at, at its core, it is a supply and demand, um, you know, framework at play driven in large part by, by this demand. And, and so that's become a huge focus for us is saying, how do we get to the roots of it? And, you know, I think when I first got into the issue, I had the very visceral, I mean, my wife and I joke that I'm justice and she's mercy. Um, and, hmm. and uh, I mean, and, and in all honesty, I mean, I, 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 would, um, not just cause I think my wife is amazing, but I, I think, and, and certainly even from a faith standpoint, I think one of, there's this, this faith concept that was sort of permeated through my childhood, this, this, this phrase from, from scripture that I'm sure you know of where it says to, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly. Um, And I think that's transcendent of, you know, every, every faith and worldview that so often we get that wrong. I think sometimes as Americans, we flip that around and we love justice and we do mercy if we have to. Um, and I, I would have been guilty of that. I, I, I got into this loving, like I wanted to see justice. I wanted to see people like locked up, um, or maybe even, you know, I get men that come up to me like, Hey, like if you need a sniper to camp out on rooftops and just start picking off these guys, like taking them out. Um, You know, and, and I think that comes from a good place of like, we want to protect the vulnerable. We want to protect the innocent. Um, but I think for us, one, really remembering like the thing we need to love is mercy. Um, we should love when people get mercy because one, we all know that like, we need mercy at times. Like I, I need my wife to extend mercy when I, you know, I'm not a great husband or my kids to extend mercy when I'm not a great dad or my coworkers to extend mercy when I'm not a great coworker. Um. But if, if you love mercy without doing justice, it's actually a horrible place to live. If everyone's just giving mercy and nobody's willing to do justice, then injustice runs rampant. Um, and so we have to do justice while loving mercy. Um, and I think if you do both of those things in that order, the outcome is you're walking humbly because you remember like, Ugh, I, I needed to receive mercy at one point. So I'm going to be a little hesitant to, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll I'm going to love and celebrate mercy because that's what I need. But at the same time, we have to put bad, you know, perpetrators away. And if they're perpetuating injustice, like we have to do something, we have to step in, let's do justice, but let's love mercy. So that was a really important orientation mm-hmm. shift for me and understanding the demand side is that many of these victimizers were the victims, you know, their stories of abuse and exploitation and the narratives that they received, the the gender narratives they received as young men, um, you know, and and by and large, in the sex trafficking world, the demand creators are men. most of the buyers are men. Um, and so the narratives they received about their masculinity and what that looks like and how that should play out in their sexuality or the abuse that they experienced at the hands of abusers. Um, and when you understand that, it doesn't mean that that they, that you let them get away with that, but I think it helps to to approach it with a little bit more understanding and compassion, and it helps us then hopefully have the lens of you know, the goal of, of decreasing demand is not just to, you can't just put away the existing perpetrators. You also have to look at where are those perpetrators coming mm-hmm. from. And and I think you can only start to address like those kids who are being groomed to be future exploiters, um, you know, and looking at what, what content in our culture. I mean, right now, childhood exposure to pornography, you know, there's, I think 11 states have declared porn a public health crisis because of, you know, essentially unfiltered access that children have to pornography. Um, and 88% of online pornography depicts acts of violence against women. And so if if our young people, um, and and men and women, our boys and girls are growing up, you know, consuming this, um, understanding the effect that that has on their brains and on their sort of dispositions and on their view of masculinity or femininity or their gender roles, you know, it it starts to feed this picture of, I'm actually more interested in what's demand going to look like in 10 years than I am right now, because I think right now we're barely, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with what's happening in culture, unfortunately.
0: You know, some of the most intense blowback I've ever gotten on this program is when I've made comments that um, lead people to perceive that I'm anti-porn, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, And, but the reason I tend to have concerns about internet pornography is not because I want to be a prude or I don't think people should have control over their sexual agency, uh, but for the things that you've just talked about, the the kind of pornification of sexuality, which encourages kind of objectification of men and women, seeing people as objects when sex comes into the picture, uh, but also seeing women as objects that should be demeaned, the 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 you know, the association of sex acts that's are more gratifying towards men is common in pornography. And as you just stated, how common depictions of varying levels of violence towards women's bodies are becoming an integral part of the production of pornographic media. Uh, You know, these things are, are, are wildly concerning. And the, the research tells us do impact the way people view themselves, the way women view their bodies, the way that men view their bodies. It affects arousal outcomes. It affects the expectations that people bring into what sex partnered sex looks like uh because of what they've seen in media, especially as children are seeing pornography at younger and younger ages. And I you know, I thought about that, and you know, you spoke of I agree. It does seem like we have a nearly universal human consensus that slavery is wrong. Uh, and yet, in our media, I see, uh, between throwaway lines and sitcoms and jokes and internet comments, um, references to sexual yeah. tourism for single men, um, it, it, you know, lighthearted jokes about that. And uh, we're talking about a tremendous, tremendous human impact, a large economic system involving billions of dollars a year. This is why I think it's important that we we have better conversations about sex and sexuality and sexual media in our culture uh the the kind of discomfort we we have especially Christians especially Christians who grew up in a religious context or excuse me Americans who grew up in a Christian context our shame over discussing sexuality directly drives the pornification yep. of our culture and i believe therefore also drives This kind of shame-based cycle uh, because lots of people, especially men, um, are so unable to communicate openly about their sexual needs and desires, whether or not they're in a relationship with another person, uh, that they do things that go against their values. There's a lot of people in the United States, especially men, uh, who visit uh, brothels both domestically and abroad in an attempt to have access to to sexual activities that otherwise feel impossible to incorporate into their lives and I, I've been thinking a lot about the role that that mm-hmm. shame plays on the demand side you know I uh to be a, just a little open and i'll 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 pause for anyone who might uh, need a trigger warning before I talk about anything that's personal and sexual? You can hit skip a few times in your podcast player and you'll go right by what I'm about to say. But I have found that after a faith transition uh, and having more open conversations with my spouse about sexual needs uh, actually makes um, life easier and life life more fulfilling. Uh, and often, I think, if we look psychologically this this cycle of shame and the inability to communicate actually creates a more extreme dynamic in people's lives than would exist otherwise, because we start to fuel kind of fetishized sexuality as opposed to something that's based on you know honest and and sincere exploration of ourselves and and with our partners. Um, yeah, I don't know what what role do you think that shame plays. In human trafficking,
1: yeah, I I would I would agree in terms of you know that I think shame is is often a central ingredient, certainly an accelerant. Um, you know, it's it can be the the gas on the fire that sort of pushes people further and further into isolation and loneliness. Um, you know, I'm so grateful to see so much compelling research coming out about the role that shame plays, um, and I've yet to see you know kind of. <laughs> a positive role that, that shame plays. And, you know, I think for me, that's one of the areas where I I get really excited to kind of open up the door for conversation because it, again, in my experience, you know, in sort of understanding the narratives of some of these men. And, and I find that when I speak, a lot of times men come up to me and almost feel a need to sort of confess of like, Oh, I've been a oh, sex wow. buyer. Like, what do I do? I didn't know. I didn't want, I don't want to be an exploiter, but I just thought like, you know, boys will be boys or I'll never forget. Um, one of the first times I spoke in a, a, university, at a university campus in an ethics class, and I was talking about human trafficking, and it was a business ethics class, so I was talking about it through the supply and demand lens, and was talking about um, pornography's role in exploitation, and also just the challenge of you know so many of those we work with that are coming out of trafficking, pornography was a part of their trafficking, um, and it can actually even be sometimes the more traumatic because it lives on after they leave the life. And so they're, you know, they go on into the workplace and some man walks up to them and is like, hey, you look familiar. Have we met before? And the first thing they're thinking is, oh, you've been watching the porn that was made of me while I was trafficked. And, and, you know, so I was just talking about the challenge of in consuming porn, statistically, roughly one out of every five online, or at least one out of every five online images would be a victim of trafficking. That is. And so the challenge is we don't know. You don't know what you're consuming. Um, and I'll never forget, and I so appreciated the honesty and the absence of shame of this guy raising his hand, you know, in this, in this classroom, men and women, you know, in the, in the classroom, and he, and he was the first one, he was like chomping at the bit to, you know, raise his hand and get his question a- answered. And um, I, I said, you know, I called on him, and he said, okay. He's like, well, obviously, like, I'm a college-age dude. He's like, obviously, I'm going to look at porn. So, like, do you have a list of, like, fair trade porn sites where I could, like, find non-exploitative porn? Um and and I, I you know I everyone kind of laughed and I was like well one like thank you for asking that thank you for you know being open being real being honest and being willing to pose that question and and thank you for the heart behind that thank you for saying hey can i find non exploitative porn like can i find fair trade porn uh cuz i appreciate the the heart behind that now let now let's unpack you know and get into some of the why why i think that's probably a fallacy um, and here's some of the brain science behind, you know, even in, in the best case scenario, if you had sort of, quote unquote, fair trade certified uh, porn, how that actually affects your brain and can predispose, um, you know, men into sexual violence or into these other things. Um, and again, this is not this, the, the conversation around pornography now, I, th- I think is actually in a healthy way moved out of the realm of the, the religious communities and the sort of the idea of like, what is, what is prudish or what is moral or what it's, it's really, I mean, it's being led by brain scientists. Now the, the brain, the brain science community, um, and are really the ones leading the charge to say, Oh, we can actually see how this affects the brain and probably the most passionate community of, um, that's sort of getting on board from a like online, um, sort of social movement is actually, Former porn addicts who were so impacted and oftentimes physically numb to the point of an absence of a, an ability to engage in physically intimate relationships in person, because um, their brain needed a level of stimulus that couldn't be replicated in person. Um, those are actually the most vocal, trying to lead this sort of like, "Hey, let's 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 move a different direction um, because this is um, this isn't this isn't healthy or this isn't ideal or this isn't how you achieve intimacy." um and i think it's so much better to have that conversation not about like are you a bad person or are you less than <clears throat> or are you worthy of shame but to have it around like is this achieving the outcomes that you want in your life are you happy are you feeling emotionally connected to the people you love are you feeling connected to your partner does this you know does does this affect in a positive way the intimate relationship you have with your partner that um it's easier to have those conversations sort of scientifically and practically than it is to have them morally um, and, and hopefully our hope certainly is that it gives people the chance to say, let's take shame out of this. Cause this doesn't, this doesn't mean you're a, a, a bad person that you should go hide in the shadows. Um, this is a very, this is a one, a very common, uh, you know, we're all sexual beings like that typically for most people, um, this is going to be a lifelong topic. If you're an honest human being, that that you're on some progression of dealing w- with sex in health and unhealth at any given time in your entire life. You have either, a, uh, you know, an increasingly healthy or an increasingly unhealthy and usually probably ping ponging somewhere in between. So let's create mm-hmm. the space to have honesty about that at least. Um, <clears throat> so I'm so thankful. I mean, I, I love just, you know, even your heart behind how do we ask honest and sincere questions without judgment? Because um, most of us didn't grow up around context where you could apply that, <laughs> that phrase, honest and sincere questions without judgment, to sexuality. Um, and so people were hiding in the shadows dealing with that. And w- the only thing we know about the shadows is that push- they get darker and darker and darker.
0: This episode of Ask Science Mike would not be possible without the support of BetterHelp. But did you know that BetterHelp is not just a sponsor of Ask Science Mike? They are the provider that I use to get therapy myself. Every single product that you hear mentioned on this program is one that I personally use on a paid basis. That's right. I am a paying subscriber of BetterHelp, and I get so much value from it. BetterHelp is an online, affordable counseling service that you can use anytime and anywhere to talk with a licensed and professional therapist. You can do that right in the app with a video chat. You can connect through a phone call. You can do text chat back and forth. Whatever is most comfortable for you is what BetterHelp provides. It's secure and allows you to connect with over 6,000 licensed therapists, which is really amazing. Here's how the process works. If you're wanting to pursue therapy in the comfort of your own home or an environment that is uh, easier and more accessible for you than trying to get to a therapist's office, you can go to BetterHelp.com. where Ask Science Mike listeners will get 10% off their first month's service. When you get there, you'll fill out a quick questionnaire that will help BetterHelp connect you with a counselor that you love. I know people tell me all the time, one of the most intimidating things about starting therapy is trying to find a therapist. And BetterHelp handles that process for you. But you say, but what if I don't like my therapist? That's no problem either you can change your therapist at any time no questions asked for no additional fee so there's really no easier way to get started in getting the professional support that can help you grow and change and heal so why not start today go to betterhelp.com/sciencemike for 10% off your first month's service well, you know, I, th- I think it's so interesting, um, this podcast, because of that, that approach, um, it has a very strange audience. You know, I've got uh, evangelical Christians who are political conservatives who listen to this program, and I have atheists who listen to this program, and I have libertarians, and I have literal Marxists and anarcho-communists, and it's just this very, very uh, different mindsets all listening to us talk right now. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program so much is because when we look at the complexities around sexuality and human trafficking, uh, it's overwhelming. No matter what worldview you bring to the table, you know. Uh, here's a story that uh, I don't know that I've told public before. I, I've told in probably a dinner party setting, but a few years ago, I got invited to. Um, Amsterdam to be part of a Christmas special, if you can believe that, on, on, on television over there. Um, they were doing a Christmas special with me and Pete Rollins, <laughs> which is a pretty pretty wild pairing for a Christmas special. And um, when I travel to Europe, I, I get jet lag so bad. And I've learned that if I go to my hotel, I will fall asleep immediately and then have jet lag for five days. So what I do now is what I call like, um, you know, my like uh, endurance march. As soon as I arrive, I drop my bags in the hotel room, and then I walk, and I don't stop walking until the sun goes down. I like it, and it's also a it's a good way to get to know a city. So I just walked around Amsterdam, no map, just exploring. And I saw this steeple in the distance. And I've I've got a thing for churches. I just love church church architecture. I love to find a church. I love to ask someone there to tell me as much of the history as they know. Maybe ask a few people before I look it up. Because I like to get a feel for not only the church and the setting, but when you ask someone about the history of a church, you really learn about the impact of that building and the people Mm -hmm. who built it. And so I found something that's called basically... The New Church was the name of the church, and it was a beautiful building and it was very old. But I said, well if there's a new church, there must be an old church. And I said, is there an old church? Was it here or a different site? And the person said, "Oh yeah, it's over there." And they point, and in the distance I could see another steeple sticking out above the rest of the city. So I on foot I walk and I walk and I walk and I walk and it was a it was a long walk. And I get to the old church which looked very similar to the new church and layout. And I'm sitting there just marveling. I mean, marveling at this building because it was old. This church was older than the United States, which a lot of things in Europe are. But uh, as an American, that's just cool to go to buildings older than your country. And I'm sitting there looking at this church and then I hear this. Um... Can I kind of look around? I don't see anything. So I keep looking at the church and I hear, And I turn around, and I'm just kind of looking around. I still don't see anything. So I turn around, and then I hear, and then I stop. And it says, I'm back here. And I turn around, and there's a naked woman standing in a glass door that she has now opened to get my attention. And then she shuts the door and kind of gestures to her body. And her window is outlined with red lighting. And I realize... This is the red light district in Amsterdam that I am in the middle of. So now I start to look around. I'm I'm autistic. I get a little focused. So I've been so but steeple hit by my North Star. I look around and there are these windows everywhere. And I don't know how I got in here. <laughs> Cause I've been walking around this church. So now I'm walking around the red light district. A man by himself. And so what happens every time I pass a window? Tap, 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 Now, this story is going somewhere. It's going somewhere on purpose. I was surrounded by families. There were people like with strollers. They have a very progressive and shame-free approach to sex and sexuality in Amsterdam. And in fact, they legalized prostitution in an attempt to combat human trafficking. Um. And so I keep walking, keep knocking. I keep like, I'm having a very um, former evangelical American reaction. I'm blushing at all these women who are either scantily clad or nude, banging on these windows with these key cards. And um, I finally passed a window and there was a woman there who was basically clothed and so I stepped over to her and I said can we talk for a second And she said it's I don't even remember the currency there she said however much it was and I said fine here you go so then she's like come inside I said, can we st- can we talk here She said no you come inside so I said, come inside she shuts the curtain I said could you leave the curtain open and she shrugs <laughs> and I said I you know I've I'm new here uh, I like to learn experientially um, you know the red light district I'm an American this is kind of a strange. A uh, concept for me. Do you enjoy this work? And she said, Oh, yes, I love this work. And she goes to shut the curtain. And I go, No, please don't shut the curtain. <laughs> so she opens the curtain again and shrugs. And I just kind of asked questions like to try to get a feel for how comfortable she is with this work, whether this is something she's choosing in her agency or whether this is something someone's getting her to do. And she said, You know, I'm here from Russia. I make a good living. Uh, I'm so. I'm so grateful to have this work to do, um, and I'm happy to do it. Um, And so I talked to her for about 10 minutes, and you could see kind of her shoulders drop when she realized that this wasn't like an elaborate uh, pre-sex work ritual that I was in the middle of, but that I actually had questions. And so then when I, before the clock was up, I said, hey, thank you so much for your time. You've really satisfied a, a lot of curiosity. Thank you. And so I go to walk for the door uh, and she steps forward and she put her arms around me and she whispered in my ear and she said, my husband makes me do it. He doesn't want to work. Wow. Wow. And then I left. And so here in this city that has a progressive view on sexuality that legalized prostitution as a tactic to combat human trafficking here was a woman who was being trafficked by her husband
1: yeah. if that's yeah. even
0: the, the 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 story i what i my my approach tends to be when people tell me their experiences unless i have a specific reason to believe otherwise i just accept people's experiences yeah. as they tell me and i walked away from that encounter with such a heaviness because How many clients does she see a day? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But I do know that in the heart of Amsterdam's red light district, there is a woman who does not, in fact, want to be there. And I say that because it's not a matter of progressive or regressive social policy that will prevent human trafficking. Uh people in Amsterdam are not they don't have hang-ups about talking about sex openly. When I I sort of like embarrassingly admitted to my host that I'd found myself in the Red Last Red Light District, he laughed and he said, It's Amsterdam, yeah. no one cares. <laughs> and yet, in that context, still there's enough demand yep. for sex work. Um that that people are forced into it against yep. their will. Um, and that's why I think. Yes, absolutely, we need to encourage shame-free conversations about sex and sexuality. And yes, absolutely, we need to work on the ways that especially men are conditioned around sex by culture, by patriarchy, and by pornography. Yes, we need to do all those things. And still, there is a tremendous need and demand for precisely the kind of work that Rescue Freedom does. And for people who agree with me, Jeremy, how can people get involved? How can they make a difference for people who are caught in sexual slavery?
1: Well, <clears throat> Mike, thanks for sharing that story. I, I haven't I actually haven't heard you share that before, so that that was uh, really powerful for for me to hear. And I think it you know, for maybe listeners that haven't spent time with you personally, as I've you know been able to over the years, you know, I think at one it shows you know something about who you are that you know in ten minutes with this person who uh, y- you know is is sort of towing the line and saying saying what she's supposed to say in terms of that she loves doing the work um but that she felt safe enough in a ten minute window to confide in you something that was a high risk truth to confide in someone you know the mm-hmm. the words that she spoke she spoke at great risk to herself um, and probably hasn't spoken to many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, for me, I think, one, it says something about you and, and the way that you engage people. Um, but I think that does also capture the tension. And, and we live in that tension as well of, of, you know, of people who, who at times are willing to say, hey, oh, yeah, no, I love this. This is really empowering. Um, but what we found time and time again, in working with survivors, and, and the more I've worked with survivors, the more that I you know that I question those earlier narratives of "oh no, this is empowering" or "this is what I want to do," um, because the, and the the data suggests otherwise, and certainly the survivor narratives suggest otherwise. Even though many of them were vocal while they were in the throes of it, um, to the contrary. And um, so, yeah, I, I so appreciate the way you kind of captured that that tension and. You know, I think that's one of the things that we want to invite people into is this understanding that, yes, many of us are drawn to this issue because in, a, in an era of like partisan politics, you know, seeming at their peak and people like, what can we possibly agree on that human trafficking on one hand is a thing that most of us can really rally around. And that's one of the things I love is I get to work with people from all different walks of life, from all different political backgrounds, from different faith backgrounds that are like, hey, we can come and unite around this. Um, but at the same time, to understand, it's a nuanced issue um, that there's there's nuance in it. And we have to engage those those nuances. We have to be informed about some of these realities of of how they play out in you know in in the real world with whether that's you know in, in Amsterdam policies around legalized sex work or um, <clears throat> you know around pornography and and what should we be doing as a culture to protect our children from unrestricted access to pornography. Um, And to kind of engage those nuanced conversations. So one of the things we tell people is we try to put as much of that content out to kind of capture the nuance and educate people in a meaningful meaningful way through our social media. Um, That's the easiest platform for people to access things typically. So one thing I would say, if you're interested in this, follow us online, uh, follow us on every social media platform at Rescue Freedom, rescuefreedom.org, because we're really trying to push out content that helps you understand the issue and dive into this issue in a nuanced way you know, that's not, that's not just pounding on the shame or this idea of like, oh, we're all just these, you know, it's not just about bringing justice. It's not just a one-dimensional issue, but it's a chance to really captivate your heart um, for an issue that's plaguing humanity um, in a significant way in this day and age. Um, so certainly following us online, um, getting in- involved, certainly if, if people are, you know, compelled to, to give and invest in this work, we are always happy to to have new new people join the community in that way, and deploying those resources to transform as many lives, and to provide trauma informed care to some of the most remote remote parts of the world. Um, so staying staying connected that way, and and also I, I would say you know having conversations with friends, being being that friend in your community that's willing to go there, that's willing to start opening up about you know, sexual violence or about your sexual experiences or about pornography to open up those conversations to create safe place, because most likely, you know, somebody who's really struggling and maybe struggling with the shame around being a sex buyer and has never felt like they could talk about. It. And if they did, they'd be rejected by everybody they, they know, and they don't know where to go to ask for help or for resources. Um, and starting that conversation about pornography might be the thing that opens the door for them to have a safe place to say, you know, I I think I want help. I think I I think mm-hmm. I want to see my sexuality or my relationship, my intimate relationships differently. Um, but somebody's got to lead those charge in the in the context, lead those conversations in the context of community. And and Mike, that's something I appreciate about you that you've been somebody that has been willing to go first in hard conversations and say, I'll put myself out there and. Hope that you know that that opens a opens up the safety and or creates a safe enough place for you to, to for you to follow along and, and feel like you can you can be known and loved and cared for for who you are. And um, in the time that I've known you, you've been you've been pretty pretty consistent in that theme. Somebody who's willing to put yourself out there to create safe places for others.
0: I care a lot about it, and um, I'm going to say something I almost never say on the program. Um. But I want I want everyone listening to know how much this means to me. Every year, uh, my friend Steve Fortunato hosts a dinner that's a fundraiser for rescue freedom. And every year now, uh, I build a discipline where um, I sit down and as that date approaches, I think, literally, what's the most I can afford to give rescue freedom this year what's the how deep Can I dig? What discomfort can I put myself in to meaningfully be a part of the work of Rescue Freedom? Because it's not that Jeremy is my friend. Jeremy is my friend. It's that this organization is doing this work well, they're doing it right morally the idea that any person is put into sexual slavery is simply something that i cannot tolerate and if i didn't do something i wouldn't be able to function or get up in the morning but i don't know i i can't go to the right places i can't connect with the right people i don't have time in my day but what i can do is figure out what i can afford to give to Rescue Freedom who will turn around and take that money and they will find a person and an organization that is in a local community and they will offer them funding and they will offer them resources in a way that rehabilitates children and women who have, who have been trapped, who have been preyed upon, and who have been abused. So friends, I ask you from the bottom of my heart with absolute sincerity, would you join me in being a part of what Rescue Freedom does? Because what they do makes a difference. And Rescue Freedom believes that slavery can be stopped Mm -hmm. for good. And I know that the people involved won't rest until it is. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on Ask Science Mike today. Your life and your work is so meaningful to me. Mm. And even saying that mm. is less meaningful to me than mm. the work of the wow. people who you support so
1: well. well. Thanks, brother. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your voice. And thanks for um, all that you do on behalf of those who often feel that they have no voice. I'm grateful for you. Thank you, my friend.